how important is it to have diversity in roles of leadership? It's absolutely essential. Not only do we know that it leads to healthier and more financially successful and successful in every way uh, organizations, but it also provides role models for people as they move up the corporate ladder who can actually visualize themselves in those leadership positions. You know, I think having diverse groups in leadership is what sets the tone for the entire organization. And to be able to have diverse perspectives and a broad point of view, you need all different voices at the table. I think a lot of it is just creating a workplace and environment where people feel comfortable being themselves, talking about uncomfortable things. This is Time to Act. I'm your host, Yvonne Hutchinson. I'm a diversity and inclusion expert, and through my company, ReadySat, I work with organizations to help them foster a corporate culture that helps provide a sense of belonging to employees. On this podcast, I'm working with CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion, the largest coalition of CEOs who have pledged to advance diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Throughout this series, we'll explore and highlight the recent steps companies are taking to tackle DNI. I'll be talking to leaders of industry and diving into why they act as ambassadors for change. Today, I'm sitting down with John Rogers. He's the co-CEO, chief investment officer, and chairman of Ariel Investments, one of the largest minority-owned mutual funds in the U.S. He's also a pioneer for diversity and inclusion in the financial services sector. John has woven DNI into the fabric of aerial investment since its inception. He sees diverse workforces as not only a nice to have, but as a competitive advantage that bolsters the bottom line. He's created numerous initiatives and educational programs that aim to increase representation across all areas of business. We spoke about the importance of supporting minority entrepreneurs and giving them a place in the boardroom and beyond. John, it is a pleasure to meet you. I'm super excited about the conversation we're going to have today, and I just really appreciate you taking the time to to talk. Sure. I want to start off by getting to know you a little bit and what brought you to Ariel Investments. And so would you mind telling me a little bit about your background? You know, I grew up in Hyde Park, Chicago, and I was very fortunate. I had two parents who were lawyers, and they got divorced when I was three. My mom stayed in Hyde Park, and my dad moved to Bronzeville. And uh, they were both pioneers in different ways. Uh, My mom was the first African-American woman to graduate from the University of Chicago Law School. And my dad was an original Tuskegee Airman and um, talked his way into law school and had the GI Bill pay for him to go to the University of Chicago, where he met my mom. When I was 12 years old, my father decided instead of buying me more toys and gifts, he was only going to buy me stock certificates and get me exposed to the stock market at an early age. And so after 12, I just sort of fell in love with the markets. I played the stock market game. I read my dad's newsletters and quarterly reports and the annual reports of the stocks that he had bought for me. And one of the things that he did that was really smart is he let me keep the dividend checks that came in. They were quite modest. You know, my father wasn't wealthy, but just getting a check in the mail that's $20 or $25 when you're a kid at that age that time in history, it was really refreshing and exciting and uh, inspirational for me. I went off to Princeton, played basketball there for the legendary coach and uh, Hall of Famer, Pete Carrill. And at the same time, while I had that extraordinary experience, I was still playing the stock market. And so I had these two passions, the stock market and basketball. After I graduated from Princeton, I went to work at a firm called William Blair and Company, 
which was the largest regional brokerage firm in Chicago. A Princeton alum, Ned Janata, got me into the interviewing process. And it was a great experience. I stayed there for two years, learned an awful lot about the investment world, and decided I wanted to start the first African-American-owned money management firm in the country in 1983. I think one of the things I talked about my father exposing me to the stock market, my mom you know, exposed me to the fact that anything was possible. If you worked really, really hard and you had imagination, there was no limit to what you could achieve. And so I think that's actually was the right mindset to have as an entrepreneur when you're 24 years old and you're trying to do something that's never been done before and trying to start a money management and mutual fund company without any performance history in an industry that had never had African-Americans have a chance to really participate in was a daunting, you know, daunting challenge. Wall Street has traditionally thrived on valuing the bottom line above all, often at the cost of social good. From the beginning, though, John has emphasized social impact investing at Ariel. So I wanted to ask him how he bucked the norm so long ago and how that mission has grown and evolved today. You know, being the first African-American money management firm in the country, we felt a responsibility to talk about civil rights and economic justice as we developed our business. We knew that a lot of people sacrificed an awful lot to get doors open for us and to create the opportunities to sort of build a money management firm here in the United States, to be on some wonderful corporate boards. Again, so many people, civil rights leaders of prior generations had done so much to get these doors open. It just seemed right for us as we were building our businesses to try to pay it forward and try to be open to get, hopefully get doors open for others, an opportunity for others. I kind of felt like it was already too young to really fully engage in the civil rights movement. And so this was a way for us to make a difference at Ariel by doing what we could as pioneers in the money management and mutual fund industry to try to get doors open for other African-American entrepreneurs, as well as African-American executives and board members. So we'll talk to our management teams and say, you know, we're disappointed that you don't have diverse leadership in your, in your team. We're disappointed you don't have diverse board members. It's hard for us to invest in you as a 21st century company if you look like a 1940s company. So having those kind of conversations constructively with management teams and the companies we've invested in, we've been able to identify over 45 times where we got a company to have what we call a Jackie Robinson moment, to have their first diverse board member because we challenged them, pushed them, and convinced them it was the right thing to do and how it would enhance the profitability and growth of their business to have diverse leaders on their board and in their management teams. So that's something we're really quite, quite proud of. The other thing we do when we talk to our management teams, we, we were on the call today with the head of diversity of a large publicly traded company today saying, we wanna to talk to you about, are you doing business with minority owned companies? And making sure you're doing business in all aspects of our economy, uh, professional services, financial services, technology, along with the supply chain decisions. And that's kind of a different conversation. People are just so used to the term supplier diversity and don't realize that that means that minority entrepreneurs are being locked out of the parts of the economy where the wealth and jobs are created today. So I keep reminding people that it's kind of a modern day Jim Crow. If the black and brown people do the construction and the catering and the white men get to do the financial services and the technology and the professional services, that continues to be a challenge of today's society. And as we all know, in watching in our polarized politics of today, you know, there's a lot of resentment around affirmative action. And some folks, you know, as much as, again, the CEO is a believer and the board members are a believer, but the, those decision makers often in the bowels of the organization 
really don't want to be told they have to think about this issue. And they often think that black and brown people got to where they are based upon, you know, unfair edge they have because of their color, that they got into a great school because of their race, they got a promotion because of their race. Now you want to manage some of the money too. That can be a challenge for us as we're trying to build our business against the big guys we compete with. Something John is very vocal about is the need for more capital to flow into the hands of minority-owned businesses in order to improve the local communities that they serve. Recently, John testified in front of the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services about the HEROES Act, a $3 trillion stimulus package that was passed in response to COVID-19. In his testimony, he commended the act, but also shed light on the ways in which it fails to address racial inequality. The pandemic has made these disparities worse. According to research by Robert Fairley, the number of black businesses sank by 41% between February and April, more than double the 17% decline of white businesses. Most of these are low margin service sector areas that survive on foot travel. They're also far less likely to have significant savings or quick access to capital to stay afloat. These disparities are linked directly to the wealth gap. Now, the size, scale, and speed of the federal response is remarkable. I commend you all for acting quickly to try and prevent the Great Depression. However, systemic inequality has limited the impact of the recovery effort. I was struck by John's assessment of the widening wealth gap as it pertains to recovery efforts. So I wanted to ask him more about what's driving the economic disparity and what actionable change is needed to reverse the course. How are you seeing the wealth gap? What are some solutions that you think can solve it? I would love if you could speak to that. Well, it's a, it's a big, 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 big question. I think one of the key things I start with, though, is the one that you sort of touched on, is that making people understand the wealth gap has gotten fundamentally greater over this last generation. You know, a couple of data points that I often mention, the Federal Reserve of St. Louis under, under a project that Ray Bashara has been very engaged with, with his team showed that between 1992 and 2016, college-educated Blacks saw their wealth decrease 10%, while college-educated Whites saw their wealth increase 96%. So up 96% for college-educated Whites, down 10% for college-educated Blacks. That's extraordinary. And then Corwin Charles, who's the dean of Yale's business school, has all this data. He's an extraordinary economist. that shows that relative to white Americans, we are worse off than our grandparents were. And getting people to really understand that even though the civil rights movement created all kinds of opportunities for us to be able to vote and sit at the lunchroom counter and sit in the front of the bus, we're not getting economic opportunities. And that's part of it. That's part of what's really, I think, gets left out. Dr. King talked a lot about many progressive whites will deplore prejudice but tolerate or accept economic injustice. And so as, as white Americans are making decisions on who they do business with, that's the first thing that's helped create the wealth gap. If you only do business with companies that are majority owned, people you've done business with for 40 or 50, 60 years, when African Americans weren't allowed to compete in those sectors, the wealth gap's going to get larger if you make economic decisions to only work with majority owned businesses. It's just understanding, making people understand the challenges that we have faced coming to this country. You know, the 1619 project that the New York Times featured, I think, last year, 
was an extraordinary piece of literature and helping us to understand how tough it's been from the days that we came here as slaves, as we started to make progress during Reconstruction, and how that was taken away from us. Even our you know, 40 acres and a mule was taken away. The stories of Tulsa and the race riots there, where my great-grandfather owned a hotel, to many, many other kind of violent confrontations that happened. And whenever we got a step ahead and started to make progress, African-American business leaders were destroyed or lynched to pull back the opportunities that we thought were going our way. All these things have conspired to create this enormous wealth gap that's just continued to build and build and build over time and helps explain why we don't have multi-generational wealth that we can pass on from one generation to the next. We start behind, we end up with more debt when we have to pay for college for our children. It's an extraordinary spiral. It's just such a complicated and tough issue. The one way to not answer it is to continue to only do business with people that look like you in the majority community and not build strong, dynamic minority leadership within your institutions. One way John is working to build a more diverse pipeline of talent for the workplace of the future is through education. Over 20 years ago, he founded Ariel Community Academy to educate underserved children on the South Side of Chicago about financial literacy and entrepreneurship. It's been a a terrific success. We have 500 African-American students there now or, or more. And we're teaching the kids about the stock market. We're giving them real money to invest in real stocks. We go down and talk to them about how do you, you know, analyze companies, how you do the research, how you decide which stocks to buy. And as the, when the kids graduate, they get a portion of the profits that they can utilize themselves. They put into a 529 program. We match it with $500, teach the kids the importance of matching. But if you think about it, not only are they learning about the stock market and learning about investing, they're also learning about financial services careers and they're learning about entrepreneurship. The second way that we create pipeline, which I think is often lost, is that at a firm like Ariel's, you know, you know, try not to talk about yourself, but, you know, we've been around 37 years. And if we look at many of the financial services leaders in Chicago, we have been the pipeline for that talent. So a firm like ours doesn't exist. Maybe you don't have a Melody Hobson. Maybe you don't have some of these other dynamic financial services leaders that are out there making a difference in our country and, and throughout the world. So it's a little bit of an argument and self-serving argument to say that you need to have successful African-American firms that can often be pipelines for talent and next generation entrepreneurs and, and, and business leaders. In the news lately, there have been a lot of conversations around board diversity. It strikes me you're on several boards. So I want to go there for a second and kind of ask you just what has your experience been serving on these boards? What advice would you give companies looking to diversify their boards? And for entrepreneurs and emerging business leaders who want to position themselves to serve on boards who might not have that mentorship, what would you tell them? That's a lot there. I think it's about three questions or four questions there. I wanted to get it all in. <laughs> okay, well, I'll try to get to it. Um, you know, first of all, my experience on corporate boards has been truly a blessing. When it comes to um, what I would tell corporate leaders today, when it comes to recruiting minority board members, that one, you know, when you search far and wide for talent, you're going to end up with a, a better team. As Reverend Jackson often says, baseball clearly became a better sport once Jackie Robinson started to play. And people got exposed to then Willie Mays and Ernie Banks and Hank Aaron and all these extraordinary leaders. There was no doubt that once people started searching for talent everywhere, baseball became, again, a better sport. 
So it's definitely the right thing to do for management to do this. It's going to make their company stronger and it's going to help them live up to the values they say they care about. But also at the same time, I tell them, if you're going to go out and recruit your first minority director, make sure it's someone that is committed to the civil rights agenda. Just don't pick someone of color and not think about it. And when you hire your executive recruiter, tell them that you want to make sure that the person that's going to come on that board and be that first person is going to someone maybe is going to have that spirit of a John Lewis who's going to understand sometimes you've got to make trouble, you know, make good trouble, ask tough questions, challenge authority. You know, as John Lewis often said, if you see something that's not right, that's not fair, you have a moral responsibility to speak up to try to make change. Well, those are the kind of diverse directors you want on your board. That's great. And I'm wondering if we could take some time and dig in a little bit more to some of your internal and external initiatives related to ESG, yes, but also to diversity and inclusion. Obviously, you're a part of CEO Action. So I'm just wondering if, if you want to speak to any of those initiatives or if there are other initiatives that you all are, are working on in that space that you'd like to talk about. Well, it's been great to work with Tim Ryan and, and CEO Action. His leadership is unique. He's making an enormous impact, so we feel truly blessed to be a part of it, that he's included us in his efforts, and he's building a great team of people and, of course, a lot of colleagues and, and, and organizations around the country. So that's been uh, real positive. I played basketball in college. You know, if you can search for basketball players all over the world when you're building your team, you're going to have a better team than if you just pick your f favorite friends from the neighborhood. It's just obvious, you know, and I think that I have to just remind people of that. And I tell them often, I tell people in boardrooms that my father always taught me the most important thing to do is to live up to the commitments that you make to others. If, you, if this organization has a commitment to diversity and inclusion, and it's on the website, it's in the annual report, and the CEO is talking about it, I'm not doing my job as a fiduciary if I'm not helping you to achieve the goals that you've said are a top priority for you and your organization. So I'm here to help you achieve those goals. And I think people see that as a constructive way to engage around these key issues that are confronting our country today. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me, John. And I really, really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. I appreciate you guys inviting me on. And hopefully I have a little bit of a different perspective and point of view and hopefully push people to think about these problems in a little bit different way. So one thing that stuck out to me about the conversation with John that I thought was really powerful is the way that he thinks about underestimated entrepreneurs, right? And, and so often our underestimated entrepreneurs are underrepresented and they're undercapitalized. And really thinking about what does it mean to give minority entrepreneurs access to your networks and access to a seat at the table, right? And, and his experience, a seat at the boardroom table. I think that there's a lot to be said about, you know, not just striving for economic participation, but also thinking about creating spaces for folks from underrepresented backgrounds to lead. The wealth gap, and that's what this is all about, the wealth gap, is a big problem. And, you know, ultimately, this conversation, what it highlights for me and what it has me thinking about, and I hope it, what it has you thinking about, is questions of economic justice. What does it mean to get uncomfortable with it? And how should we be thinking about closing that wealth gap? So what did you learn today from John Rogers about creating robust local economies through diverse workforces? Let us know in the comments section. We want to hear from you. We also want to know what you think of the show, so leave us a review. 
Subscribe to Time to Act for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. You won't want to miss upcoming conversations with groundbreakers who are leading the charge to improve diversity and inclusion in their companies and industries. I'm Yvonne Hutchinson. Let's keep the conversation going.